Are China and the US sliding into Thucydides' trap? Are they bound to follow history, or can they work together to avoid war? In Financial Cold War, author James Falk examines the relationship between the two superpowers through the lens of financial markets. The book reveals how the global financial system is contributing to geopolitical tensions, and it offers a pragmatic approach to de-escalation. Falk explains, little attention has been paid to the diverse range of policies, regulations, infrastructures, and conventions that support the global financial system. And without an appreciation of these and the history of how the system has come about, it's difficult to understand the full scope of the systemic financial challenges facing the world's two largest economies, much less device effective strategies for navigating the treacherous waters we're in. I invited James Falk to join me for a conversation that matters about potential outcomes of the tensions between the US and China and what you need to pay attention to as Premier Xi strives to make China great again. James, thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. You know, what has happened that has brought us to this point? Over history, there's been periodic increases and decreases in wealth concentration. And what, what's happened over the last 40 years is that wealth and income has accrued and concentrated amongst the very few. History teaches us that when this happens, it inevitably leads to greater social tensions, which often spiral into conflict. And that's the situation that we're in with China and the US at the moment. So you would say that there is this inequity in both countries between the rich and, and those who are, in many cases, struggling to survive. That's absolutely right. The, the Wealth and income inequality has become a very big political issue in, in the US of late. In China, because it's grown very rapidly, and most people over the last 40 years have experienced huge improvements in their standards of living, it's not yet become as big a, or as an acute as a, a political issue as it is in the United States. But the pressures are very much building. And, and what, what's happened in both countries is that these issues are complex and they often involve conflicts between different segments of society. And it's very tempting for policymakers, rather than to deal with these difficult issues, to turn to often populist and nationalist populist rhetoric, which really doesn't help matters. And in the specific circumstances of the United States and China has worsened relations even further. So are you saying that because there is this inequity, let's say in the United States, which I'm more familiar with, you can get this division and people are then now attacking the 1%. So political leadership goes, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to grasp onto something that is a populist movement and I'm going to blame China. 
And in doing so, are they then increasing tensions between the two countries? And is in China, are they doing the same thing? Yes, basically, that's uh, that's what's happening. And I think when you look at when you look at the the, the range of issues, I think you have to. There are, of course, a huge number of reasons and a huge number of drivers of great power relations. But what one of the things that has not been examined very carefully is the role of financial markets in these. Most people think of financial markets as this kind of complicated, esoteric thing out there where you, know, you have a whole bunch of kind of young math whizzes out you know, trading the markets and making avaricious amounts of money. But the reality is that financial markets are very simply a tool. That They're a tool that do two things. One, they provide a means for society's resources to be allocated. And two, they are a mechanism for sharing risks. And so ultimately, financial markets are, are an allocative mechanism. And by and large, they work really well. But that they don't always function perfectly efficiently and they have no inherent tendency towards fair outcomes. And so that, that's really where regulation and laws and you know, regulators and governments come in. And what we've seen over the last 40 years is that for, for various reasons, and some of them quite innocent, that the system has just simply abdicated its responsibility for putting the guardrails around the market. And one of those drivers in particularly the Western world has been this embrace of free market ideology, that the expectations that markets are self-correcting and so as long as you leave them alone, everything will be all right. That, that's turned out very clearly not to be the case. So in your book, you know, you start off by uh, describing or laying out the history of the establishment of the U.S. dollar as the dominant currency in the world. Why is it important that we understand that if we're to understand the dynamics that are underway right now between China and the U.S.? The, the, the dollar is absolutely critical in this because it is the monetary unit of account on which the entire allocative process of markets is founded. They're really kind of, when I talk about the financial Cold War, people often think about sanctions, they think about trade wars, they think about all the banning of banks from SWIFT and, and all these types of measures. But the reality is by the time you get to that point, you're already in a financial hot war. That The financial Cold War is the, the slow and invisible build-up of tensions that, that lead up to that point. And, and these are things that are embedded in national financial policies and the structure of the international financial system. I, I identify in the book four areas that where markets have really gone wrong and which are driving the, the types of social tensions that are leading to conflict. The most important of those is the dollar, but there's also three other factors. 
what one of those being international fiscal competition the the next being failures in industrial policy and particularly failures in antitrust regulation and enforcement and the third is the perverse incentive structures that often exist for the people pulling the levers of the economy so when you look at the, the way that the dollar has driven or played a role in driving those social tensions, you, you have to take a step back and look at what the last hundred years of monetary history has been. At the end of the Second World War, the dollar was lodged at the center of the global monetary system through the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944. Okay, so does this put the United States at risk or does it put those other countries that have invested in uh, the dollar as their, um, you know, cash reserve in essence, um, are they more at risk? And, and is it this tension? Because if we take a look at the fact that China owns so much of the, of the American debt, do, does fluctuations in the dollar have uh, ripple effects through both countries and economies? It, it clearly does have ripple effects through both economies. The, the, the structural fragility has, has created volatility for both countries and all countries around the world. And, and that source of volatility is a source of instability that you know, periodically, periodically flows through the world creates a whole load of havoc, including displacement, job loss, and other socio-economic tensions. The, the huge amounts of debt and reliance on the dollar has created, without a doubt, a huge risk for other countries, because ultimately, it's not just simply the, the value of the dollar or potential depreciation risk that, that they face, but it is also the, the possibility that they may not be able to access those funds or they could be frozen out of the international trading system or the international investment system because the, the U.S. doesn't like them or doesn't like what they've done. The United States has more of a, uh, a muscle that it can flex when it's directed at Russia, but not so at China. Um, is it not in both countries' best interest to figure this out? Absolutely. But the, the, the fact is, that, the, the fact is that, that there's a huge cost to the U.S. of the dollar serving this role. And you know, the, this system that was created was never a good idea, and it wasn't until over a decade after Bretton Woods that people started to properly appreciate the the, the imbalances and problems in that system. By that point, it, it was really too late, and the, the imbalances that the system created have compounded for decades since. You know, for, from my dealings with Chinese policymakers o over the course of the last 10 years, it, it's very clear that although there's a huge narrative that exists about China looking for the renminbi to use up the status of the US dollar, that the reality is 
the Chinese policymakers are very apprehensive about this because they realize the huge costs and burdens that the U.S. has borne for its currency serving in this role. And so they, they've been very cautious and very slow in allowing their currency to internationalize. If we take a look at the history of China and see the rapid rise to where they are now, was, were there structural uh, elements in place within you know, fiscal and financial policies in, in China that could have uh, maybe foreseen some of these challenges and averted uh, the potential conflicts earlier than we're now uh, looking at addressing them? But for China, over the last 40 years since reform and opening up, it's followed a path that it's followed a path whereby it's had one real asset, which is it's had a huge abundant labor supply. And so a very big driver of China's prosperity today was the fact that the, the government harnessed this generation of baby boomers as they went into the, the workplace and started earning and saving, the Chinese government, rather than building up huge debt to international institutions, that they've used the control over the state banking sector to direct those savings into investments in infrastructure and other development. And so in order to do that, China has suppressed consumption and so Chinese consumers generally consume a far lower portion of their savings than Americans and, and a lot of Westerners. But ultimately, that's created an economy that's very much driven by a top-down investment-led growth model. And that, that's a model that today is running to the end of its road, in large part because China's population is aging very rapidly over the next 40, 50 years, China is not only going to see a decline in working age population, which is already happening, but it's also going to see a decline in its absolute population. And so the, the continuing of pouring of concrete as a means of driving GDP growth is leading to huge misallocations of resources where ultimately if it continues, it is going to create huge socio socioeconomic stress on Chinese society. So China needs to reform their model. It needs to both see greater consumption by Chinese consumers, but it also has to help those consumers invest in assets that are going to help support them through their retirements. And the big problem for China is that because it's run this system for so long, it has underdeveloped its capital markets. And so when, when you look at the, the when you look at the allocation of Chinese investors' savings, the, the largest pool of savings goes into residential real estate. I think something like seventy eight percent of urban household wealth is held in residential real estate. This compares with around thirty five percent in the United States. The next largest pool of China's wealth sits in bank deposits. So China needs to get more of those bank deposits into stocks and bonds. And what, one of the challenges that they've got is that China's capital markets, larger as they are, are not deep enough to absorb that amount of capital in a short space of time without creating huge asset price bubbles. 
And so China needs to allow more of those portfolio investment flows to go overseas. The, the challenge that they face now is that if a Chinese investor invests outside of mainland China beyond Hong Kong, he or she is entirely dependent on a Western-controlled uh, payments, settlements, and custody and depository system. And when the Chinese government looks at how U.S. sanctions have been affected on Russia, they, they've just said simply, look, we, we just cannot possibly run this type of financial security risk. And so th this has led to this kind of rather, ra rather self-defeating conflict where it, it would certainly be in China's interest to allow you know, all the thousands and tens of thousands of Mrs. Wangs sitting in Chongqing and Shanghai to invest in a few shares of Apple and Google. It would certainly be in the West's interest to see that, not just because of the fact that that's a lot of capital that can help drive investment in developed economies like the US, like Western Europe, but also you know, a thousand Mrs. Wang buy a few shares of Apple or Google doesn't create any major geopolitical tension. Whereas the, the mechanism that China is forced to use today, which is Chinese companies, particularly state-owned companies, going out and buying whole companies or buying foreign assets through foreign direct investment, that, that creates significant tensions because it creates, it creates the suspicion of uh, technology transfer, government control, jobs transfer, and that, that lies at the root of a lot of these tensions. If China was able to allow its citizens to individually go out and buy bonds and buy shares in other parts of the world without having to worry about the risk of U.S. sanctions if they, they happen to come into conflict over a particular issue, you, you could remove a lot of the major points of stress and conflict between the two countries. You know, here in Canada, uh, Huawei um, is you know, poised to become the supplier of 5G and there's a considerable amount of uh, uncertainty and, and public, uh, well, uh, opposition to this idea because of just what you're saying. The average person goes, well, this is a state-owned uh, company that is going to get access to everything that's happening in Canada. And so then there is this fear. Do we, you know, do we have an interconnected uh, financial world uh, when we start to feel that our um, I IP and uh, sensitive information is going to be open to a foreign nationally owned company? This is, this is a, a particular challenge of our time as com communications and platform technologies have proliferated. I think that there are quite legitimate concerns that, that need to be addressed. The, the reality is that companies like Facebook, Google, and so forth are, are just as likely to abuse their, their control of access to that data. And so in that sense, it, it's something that governments around the world need to come together to address. 
in Europe, they, they put in place re regulations that control or, or protect data privacy of consumers, and, and consumers are able to select what, what data they share. So what is the most important thing that we need to be paying attention to as leaders in really the United States and in China make decisions and how that can escalate or de-escalate tensions that arise in a financial cold war? The, the narrative for over recent years has been around decoupling or, or disengagement. The, the reality is that the, the global economy, international investment of trade have made the United States, China, and other countries so intertwined and interconnected that any attempt at decoupling would simply reduce prosperity for us all. We, we can't look back on that. But what we need to do now is to, to make sure that, that the financial system and national financial policies work better to better distribute the fruits of economic growth so that those tensions that, that have been simmering below the surface and, and building up can be de-escalated over time. Do you believe that we can or the two countries can avoid the Thucydides trap? I believe that it can, but ultimately it's going to depend on lots of individual small moves made by both countries' leaders. Is that what you were hoping would be the outcome of writing this book, that you could uh, put this um, situation uh, forefront in the minds of enough decision-makers that they can be aware of what potential problems may arise? Part of the reason in writing the book was so that policymakers might be able to better understand and hence uh, adjust their policies. But the, the book is not just at policymakers. Ultimately, these decisions, these financial policies affect each and every one of our lives. And so in very large part, I also wrote this book to help explain it to everyone so that each person can put pressure on their political representatives to make sure that they're doing the right things and acting in the interests of society as a whole. Rather than just having a knee-jerk emotional response. Exactly. Well, thank you, James. Uh, we've gone way over for my television show, but I'm going to run the whole piece online. I, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Stuart.